that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm John Viola, along with my partners in crime, the Bella Bensonhurst, Miss Rosella Rago, and the notorious P.O.B., Patrick O'Boyle. We are all together again here in the New Year's, the first, I think, recording we've done together, not only in 2024, and we're not doing it in person for the first time in a long time. We're back on Zoom. But uh, it's the first time we've been together since... IAFL2, Italian-American Future Leaders Conference in Florida. Our second annual version was held over Martin Luther King weekend, uh, middle of January. And man, was it an inspiring couple of days in South Florida. And uh, it's going to inform a lot of the coming episodes that we have because so much incredible stuff was done and discussed there, including the topic we're going to tackle today with some amazing guests. But first and foremost, guys... We had a wonderful, wonderful time down in Florida, not only our second annual conference, but also Pat's birthday weekend. Um, but before we go into detail, we should establish for the audience, this is kidding aside, Pat, you made a very, very lucky recovery. You were in like real health danger days before we left. Uh, yeah, correct. You want to give the audience a little insight? Do they really want to hear? Well, I mean, really, like, I, you know, all joking aside, we almost lost you. I'm going to preface it with this. Then we're going to get 8,000 emails, 5,000 home physicians. <laughs> we're going to tell you what me. to do. That's true. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I, I take very good care of my teeth. Okay. I have a water pick. I have the gum thing. You stick between your teeth. The green thing. You get at Costco. Those little picks. I have a Dentec. The Dentec things that the, the, the what do you call that stuff? The, the dental floss is on the thing. I have a electric toothbrush. That's. NASA worthy. <laughs> so I have top notch equipment. I, so what happened was when my wisdom teeth were removed, I had two of the four removed and two remained. And I had one of my teeth was bothering me a little bit before Christmas, but I didn't want to go into It felt sandy in the back. My long story short, I didn't want to go to the dentist before Christmas because they did dental work on me and I had an issue. And then my mother's going to start screaming. I spent all this money on fish and you can't eat it. And why do you have to get this done now? And you got to ruin every holiday. You always got to start trouble, whatever she's going to go off about. So my brother was home from DC and he likes to get all his appointments, all his checkups done over Christmas when he's home. So my mother said to him on the 26th, you have the dentist tomorrow at one And I said, let me go to the dentist and get this checked out because I was going to do it after IAFL. So I take the ride in with my brother to the dentist and I walk in and the dentist said to me, oh, what are you doing here type of thing? So I just want can you just look at my tooth? And he just starts acting like I'm having a heart attack. So to make a long story short, I had an infected wisdom tooth, but they went berserko. He said it was two or three weeks. He said you were two or three weeks, month max away from going into sepsis. That's crazy. It was right under my brain. Then I had an infection, another tooth, and it was a whole disaster. John knows this. I didn't have solid food for two weeks. I was on two rounds of antibiotics. But the real, do you want the Italian lesson in all this? Yeah. Is my mother. (laughs) This is true. I know what your mother said to you. My mother said to me, all that money you spend on that equipment, your bathroom is a mess with all those different things that you, she makes fun of my floss and all that stuff. She goes, and you got it anyway. Thank you, mother. Because she thinks anything that happened after 1966 is silly. Like color TV just made it before the break off. She would prefer rotary phone. And John, you know my mother. That's the God's honest truth. That's true. My mother has all her rotary phones. She liked to put them back into use. (laughs) 1960s. You know how the Amish? I had a friend in high school who had that question. Did the Amish have a big committee one year, in 1843, and say we'll just this stop? It, this now. is it. This yep, is it. Done. Whatever we got today, we've got everything. Anything, anything that comes out tomorrow, we're not getting. My mother had that moment in June of 1966. <laughs> My mother put ice on that. So like, and me having the water pick, yeah, the electric toothbrush, multiple different types of floss, anything I do that's new, any kind of new thing. Like, my mother hates remote controls, but she really does. She likes to get up and turn the TV channel. Anything that I have that's new and progressive, because people don't know this about me. I'm a fountain pen person, but I also like new things. Yeah. That's why I get into certain things. So she makes fun of all my dental cleaning equipment. And this was kind of like her big ha-ha moment. 
I got you moment. I tell you, you waste all that money on those water picks and that dental floss and ha, 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 you got it anyway. She wasn't like, oh, my God, my baby. I'm so no, glad. No, no, it was Livia Soprano all the way. Wow. That's no surprise. That's, that knowing you, the stories, that's no surprise. Yeah, you just, but I know you. I know you well because you were really sick, right? I, I mean, everybody I talked to, I talked to your brother Anthony. I talked to Brendan. Your doctors were really concerned. You were basically on like a do not fly list, and you did everything you could to come down because yeah. you really take IFL seriously because this is your baby. This is your vision. It's also your birthday weekend. We had a great celebration. That's um, a millennial holiday, though. What your birthday? Yeah, but I, I wouldn't like you guys make it a yeah. wonderful thing. No, it's great. Beyond. Yeah, but it's like I'm a I'm a millennial. Let's get party hats. No, it's I'm not that you want the recognition. It's just a good way to spend a birthday weekend. Like you're. Yeah, you're, sure. I mean, when you're turning forty nine, yeah. which is yeah. a miserable age to turn. I mean, the guy is turning fifty is one step worse than me. I <laughs> mean, you are right. Like your birthday is like selfish for us, so like we have an excuse to throw. I mean, it's something. It just it goes by quicker when you have all the stuff going on. But. You really fought to come down. It was important to you. I know that. I know you took it really seriously. The big glaring hole in all of this that we should take away from this is, what was it? London Bridge is flowing down? What, when the Queen died, what was the code word? Everything I think, yeah, London Bridge. Did? Yeah, the Queen Mother, I think that was. Right, so when the old lady went, they were all prepared. We got we got to plan out when I my when I got because if I had gone there with very little preparation, I would not have gotten the send off that I really would like to have had. <laughs> no, you would not. That takes years of planning. Yeah, but you were at the point where you were picking out the funeral flowers. You were picking out hymns. I had that stuff picked out years ago. Oh. We just need all in paper. <laughs> you were ready like to go. Jobs and cast, and you take this and you do that. But IAFL was. I know it's a priority to you, and it really like I we went in. I was very nervous. Yeah, when I die, that's that's the mausoleum. That's, yeah, that's my. You're period. proud of this, right? Yeah, correct. Because we form future leaders. When I'm that's going to be the next generation that moves us ahead. But I really went in nervous because we had great success last year. We had a hundred amazing fellows, two of which we're going to get to speak to today. Um, and I kind of figured, okay, maybe we caught lightning in a bottle. There was a great energy, great spirit to the event last year. People stayed in touch. We just had some amazing conversations. And I thought to myself, you know. Can we pull this off again? And then, like everything today, right, the applications came in last minute. So we were kind of forced to make the decision to, okay, do we just want to, like, uh, go beyond our 100 that we budgeted for? We, we had so many good candidates. So we pushed beyond. So we had budgeting concerns. You know, we really were pushing to make this thing. And I was very nervous. And within a couple of hours of day one, I realized, wow, not only were we able to replicate the success of last year, we were able to, I think, expand beyond it. And we had mentors back that had been there last year. We had new ones. We had alumni coming back and participating in a different version. And then we had these hundred and something, I think 120 new fellows that were there and they were incredible and the conversations were elevated. And I think the thing that I'm most proud of about this year in terms of how we improved it and what we learned from doing a mini one in Detroit in the interim and all these kind of things is that we were able to integrate into the program, not just those mentors and speakers that we handpicked like last year, but people who came forward with ideas they wanted to bring to the table and to the conference and concepts that they wanted. Uh, one of them, who you'll probably meet in a later episode, I hope, was a, a fellow from this year who gave an amazing presentation. And two of them are with us now. They are IAF alumni from the first year. They are incredibly accomplished lawyers, small business owner, just amazing community leaders. And also after uh, meeting for the first time a little over a year ago, our friends as well. So I'm really, really thankful that they put their names in to come forward and present what I think is an incredibly important topic and one that not enough people in our community are talking about. And I'm going to let them do the talking about it. So Chiara Parisi and Christina Carabetta, you guys out there in the audience have met Christina before from her episode on the National Italian American Bar Association. Chiara, I don't think you were on the episode we did recapping IFL last year, right? No, you didn't come on. So this is going to be a first time for everybody to meet you, and I will let you guys kind of dive right into what brings you here in this amazing topic. I don't even know if I'll say it right. Kind of what race are we in the eyes of the U.S. government? Is that correct? Yeah, so basically, you know, we gave a presentation on how Italians are racially and ethnically defined and how data is collected. 
on us. And, and the reason this whole kind of subject came about was because in 2022, uh, President Biden put together a federal working group made up of 28 different agencies, right? And he asked them to to rework the, the racial and ethnic categories, right? He says, there's been a lot of complaints around them. I want you guys to improve them however you see fit. Um, and, and these federal agencies, they came together um, and kind of uh, taking into consideration some of the, the complaints they had heard over the past however many years, um, put together some initial proposals on how uh, they would change these racial and ethnic categories. Um, and, and when they put them out, they asked for people of different races and ethnicities to kind of respond and say, okay, well, what do you think about this, right? And so uh, some people in the Italian American community, we saw that um, and, and we really felt like the proposals totally overlooked our unique identity and, and our needs when it comes to data. Um, so we came together to submit a public comment in April and then in September, we also uh, met with the federal agency heads to give them a presentation. And I, I'm trying to remember the timeline of how I encountered this because I got a phone call at some point from a gentleman from New Jersey who had been talking about this issue. I don't yeah. want to forget his name, unfortunately. Christopher Benetti, maybe? Yeah, maybe. I think that might be it. Um, so I, I'm trying to remember kind of a timeline of when I got introduced to this thing. But I guess the question goes to you two guys is, were you guys working on this or aware of this when you came to IFL one last year? And were you guys aware of one another? Did you guys know each other before? Cause now you're sort of uh, partnering on this. Yes. And Christina and I've known each other for a few years. Yeah. Because we were both on the board of Niaba. Okay. Gotcha. We were actually in the same group last year and this was on our SWOT analysis. It was all coincidentally not on purpose. I, Kiara and I knew each other from Niaba, but we were coincidentally in the same group. We didn't, choose to be in the same group right um and we put this on our SWOT analysis even before we started working on it with Niaba right yeah I mean about a month after that first uh conference is when I found out that the Biden administration was doing this right and so then I started reaching out but I had I mean I ever since I took constitutional law in law school I mean I always thought about this issue for Italians but this, you know, working group that he put together gave us like an opportunity to really advocate for ourselves. You know, could I just say, because I don't think I've ever told you this, Kiara. Um, so just for the audience to understand, one of the things we do at IFL is these SWOT analyses for critical issues around our community that our community is facing. And uh, like these ladies point out, they were coincidentally in the same group. It's all random. The participants get separated out and then they analyze and present. And I think it was early on in, the first day of the conference last year when you guys presented and you, I believe it was you, Kiara, speaking, made a point around this, around the way that we get categorized, what it means in terms of reporting, in terms of statistics, in terms of knowing and understanding our community. And you were talking about ways that we could advocate for improvements in this exact field. And it was the point where I remember thinking to myself, very distinctly remember the moment, thinking to myself, okay, I thought we were going to have a bunch of people whose grandparents and parents begged them to come and we were going to like teach them about the Italian community. And these people are just frankly smarter and better suited for leadership than even we are. So it was the moment that gave me like the sense of like, Oh wow, we're, we're in good hands here. This is really going to work. So thank you for that. And uh, it's amazing that you guys are now actually working on this from the perspective of potential change. Let's go in a little bit to give the audience a sense of how we ended up white, if you can, from a statistic perspective. So generally, like the, the, the racial and ethnic categories, white and black, at least, they originated with this German scientist in the 1700s who wanted to make an attempt to categorize human beings, right? It hadn't been done before. And he came up with, uh, I think, five categories, white, black, yellow, red, and brown. Right. Um, and he in the white category, he placed Europeans, North Africans and Middle East, Middle Eastern people. Right. And, and that's what we still see today. Right. Um, and he even said, listen, these are really rough boxes. Uh, there's people from different boxes that have may have more in common than people in the same box. Don't don't go creating little you know boxes for people to check out of this or anything. <laughs> you know, these are just rough estimates. Um, and here's my first stab at kind of categorizing 
the, the, the different human races, right? Then other German scientists kind of took that and made that made it the basis of you know what we call scientific racism, right? Where they said, oh, well, the the white race is superior. Um, and then that really, the U.S. kind of took those categories, took all that kind of reasoning, and it became the foundation of how we racially categorize human beings. Now, over time, it's, you know, evolved, right? So we don't use things like or categories like red or yellow or brown, right? But but white and black have stuck around. So that's where it started. That's so weird if you think about it, really. Yeah, that, yeah. How, how we got to this hybrid. I mean, Pat, you always talk about the idea that at some point we went from categorizing people by nationality to this idea of race or, you know. Well, that's the, that's the new thing. I would say in my grammar school, uh, all my educational years, I would say up until about 25 years ago, you were an ethnicity or combinations of ethnicity. Like you're Irish and Slovak or Polish and Italian and or just all Italian or you were Greek. So we went from European nationalities to becoming white. We've all been imputed now from a culture into a, a racial category. So if you ask kids today what you are, they're going to respond white. That's what I have found with college age kids. They respond with their race as opposed to their ethnicity. Yeah, I find that really fascinating because, you know, again, and, and I know you guys encountered this in your research and presentation, you know, the, the question becomes, if you can't describe yourself based on a, a national heritage and, and ethnicity from a, you know, a different nation coming to America, then you have to be put somewhere, right? Because the ultimate point of all of this, I think, is statistics, right? And, and, and government information. So can one of you guys talk a little bit about kind of why we need these things in the first place? Like think about France, right? France has this blind citizenship and they don't take, I, I, as I understand it, maybe they changed it now. The French don't categorize anybody other than as a French citizen. They don't know if you're uh, North African or Muslim or Christian. It's just they just ignore it. And we have all these sort of patchwork versions to get there. So why do we do this? So I think, it, I mean, it mainly just has to do with civil rights, right? I think it's largely come, comes from civil rights movements that wanted data so that they could, uh, you know, know what disparities exist and then advocate for those disparities to kind of be remedied, right? And, you know, today there's a, it's, it's tricky because a lot of programs consider race or at least discuss race, right? Um, race is like a huge topic in the U.S., right? Um, now with the recent affirmative action ruling, there are some limits to what you can do, though from my understanding that ruling was quite narrow, right? So it just prevents you from considering race in college admissions specifically. It wouldn't maybe prevent a school from considering race in hiring, Right. And it doesn't really, I think, prevent uh, racial, you know, affirmative action programs in the employment sector. Um, could people sue those programs and maybe win? I mean, I think, yeah, they haven't at this point, as far as I know. But so we're in a kind of a limbo here on, on how much you can do when it comes to someone's race. But for now, uh, race is, you know, uh, it's, it's often discussed. And sometimes it's formally considered in applications or, or you know, whatever, whatever it might be. So that's why it's, I think, uh, really important to many civil rights groups to have that data. How does it benefit our community to have the data? Like, what would we use it for? Well, so I, you know, the thing that drives me crazy and I work in education, right? And so I know that there's been studies done that show that Italians are, you know, underrepresented in elite universities, right? Or they're, they're underrepresented in academia. But I think if we continue doing studies, you know, we would see that maybe Italian Americans are underrepresented in tech companies or whatever it might be. We know that Italians are underrepresented in the medical field, right? So for me, it's really important that Italians, one, have that data that shows that we're underrepresented. And then we then advocate for ourselves to be included in programs that try to remedy disparities by race and ethnicity, right? And right now we're just considered white and this white box really hides um, all those disparities that exist for Italian-Americans. Wow, that was really well said. I'm glad you said that because it's like we we just get put in this box and everybody just, you know, assumes like, oh, you white people. Right. Yeah, it's so odd to me to think like we kind of became 
white, right? If you if you look back at so many of, and, and again, people conflate sometimes like official government statistics yeah. versus you know uh, newspaper advertisements. So there's, there's a lot of different ways totally. we were categorized as non-white, right, or colored, or all these different categories. And from the perspective of immigration records, where you had Northern Italian versus Southern Italian, or you know advertisements that you find where employment and pay was ranked by ethnicity or race and Italians were on the lower end of the scale, all these different things. But from the perspective of like the official government record and statistics, we are at this point in a category that I think a lot of our community perhaps doesn't feel we belong in. Uh, And Christina, you're the head of the National Italian American Bar Association. What's the general feeling? Is there a general consensus around what we're advocating for from the legal community? I think it's just at the end of the day to be recognized. I think there is still um, a lot of debate within our community as to how we want to be categorized, right? People have their different opinions. And our point is just saying your opinions are valid and they're okay. It's not saying you can't be defined as a certain term, but those that want to be categorized as maybe Italian American or Mediterranean should at least have that ability or that voice. So it's just giving more recognition to our community at large. You know, it's so interesting that, you know, America categorizes us so differently than, uh, let's say, Australia. Remember, we had that whole episode on Australia. And in Australia, we're WOGs. We're we're lumped in with, like, Greeks, Lebanese, people, you know, I mean. What does WOG stand for? I don't think we ever got an answer for that. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) etymologically where WOG comes from. But the question becomes, is that a is that a government? I mean, from a from a social perspective, Italians think of themselves as wogs, right? And they're they're referred to by popular culture, and they're Le- Lebanese are wogs, and Greeks are wogs, and all these sort of particular immigration groups. But I don't know in terms of government categories what Australians look at. But I think Austra- uh, I, we've said this before whenever we've had an Australian guest on, and I I say this really from an academic perspective. Wog is their concept, but it really. It's a game changer because it puts all like um, I would say Balkan and Mediterranean immigrants into one category. Mm-hmm. So I would say like Greek, Italians, I guess like Croatian. I put them in the book. They're, they're kind of Lebanese, I, I would, right? Lebanese. But you know what? It's funny. I now use the term in my own mind Like the WAG term actually stuck into my head because there really is something to be said for that. Well, that makes sense. That's one of the things you guys presented at IFL that I found fascinating, right? You asked the audience to take an anonymous poll, how they categorize themselves. And, you know, you think about how people want to identify. One of the things we always champion here, uh, and I've done for my whole career as a professional Italian American, is we have significant numbers of self-identification on the last few censuses, right? We're not on there as an official check, but people who have taken the time to write Italian or Italian-American or something that clearly ties them to that. It went from 18 million to 18.2. I I don't remember exactly what it was the last time, but it's, it's actually grown. Now you'll have some people tell you demographically that's, that's set for a cliff. Okay, whatever. Um, But that's a significant self-identification, right? Because we're a large size ethnic group. So people want to be known as this separate thing. That's obvious, right? But you guys presented some really interesting proposals, I suppose you'd call them, that are out there. Some, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Recommend, there were recommendations. Recommendations, thank you. Recommendations for categorization. And, and some of them included this kind of bundling with the Mediterranean. What, what's out there in the running right now for us to be? Yeah, so I think, I mean, just before we re- jump into our recommendations, so our recommendations were based on the data boxes of collection. So, you know, when you're filling out maybe like a census um, and you have to check like an ethnicity or a race box. So before this working group um, put out their proposals, the the boxes were broken down into two groups. Um, there are two standards, like ethnicity and race. So the ethnicity-based question was basically just asking, are you Hispanic or Latino? And you were supposed to check yes or no. And then the next box was a race-based question and what is your race and you have the ability to select one or more 
And the choices usually include American Indian, um, Asian, Black or African American, Native Hawaiian or other Pacific Islander, and then white. So that was the standard. And then with this new proposal, uh, rather than separating race and ethnicity, they combined it. So the question becomes, what is your race or ethnicity? And you're supposed to check all that apply. Um, and the boxes were generally the same, uh, except here they added Hispanic or Latino to the box. Um, and then notably Middle Eastern or Northern African got their own separate box. And that was just because of successful advocacy from that community. So that's pretty much what the federal group wanted feedback on from members of different race and ethnicities. Um, so we just came up with three separate recommendations um, based on what we were hearing from in the community. And we, you know, didn't say this is what you have to take. Um, it's basically just like this is what the Italian community as a whole is advocating for. So the first recommendation was really to use an alternative to the white category. Um, and we gave a few different suggestions. So the first one um, was to just eliminate the minimum category altogether and only collect data at the detailed category level. Another alternative was to consider Southern European or European Mediterranean. And I think maybe this is most similar to the you know, uh, WAG term that you guys were just mm. talking about. So it's a category that would include like Portugal, France, Spain, Italy, Greece, and could also extend to the Balkan region. Uh, another alternative was the category Mediterranean. Uh, and this would include Southern Europe, North Africa, and the Middle East. But we were a little hesitant about this alternative because um, specifically like North African uh, and Middle Eastern were successful in advocating for themselves to be differentiated. So we want to res be respectful of that. Uh, another alternative was just a European category. And this is just a category for all European countries and would essentially eliminate the white label without changing the grouping. Mm. Uh, but this presents an issue because it's still the same thing as basically identifying as white. It's just changing the word. So with this category, if agencies continue to only collect minimum category data, the disparities between different European groups would continue to be mass. So we wouldn't get like a self-identification as a community. Um, and then finally, the last alternative within this first recommendation is Hispanic or Latino. And the rationale behind this was the Spanish conquered Italy for about a century. Uh, so sometimes Italians could be arguably considered Hispanic. Can I jump in on that a minute? Yeah, yeah, of course. I have, I've had so many students with Italian last names who are Hispanics because mm -hmm. they are the children of Italian great-grandparents who went to countries like Argentina, yeah. um, Brazil, Brazil, intermarried. Sometimes they're mixed. Sometimes they're purely Italian. And they come to the United States with a Hispanic first name and an Italian last name. Yeah. So culturally, and, th and that's really interesting because especially with the Argentinians, are you Italian? Are you Italo-Argentinian? Are you Italo-American? Are you Italo-American-Argentinian? You know, um, I know an Argentinian woman. Her parents were born in Italy and her and her siblings were born in Argentina. And as adults, they came to the U.S. and brought their Italian parents. So they speak amongst themselves as siblings in Spanish and speak to the parents in their dialect. Yeah. Right. Only in America. This is the great complication here, right? Because like when Christina mentions these kind of recommended categories and the idea that, yeah, OK, so you if you just change the word white to European, of course, it does cover everybody, at least in Europe, both geographically and politically. But at the same time, the question becomes, what is our experience socially, right? What's our sociological experience as a as a people here in this country? And we know it's a diverse one because it's very different for an Italian-American who came in the 1950s versus the 1880s and all these different things. But essentially, if you have to find some unifier, right, to categorize us, what experiences do we relate to? And I think back to this idea of the WAG and our, our conversations like with Sushi Mango, uh, Australian Italians or the Italian Australian podcast crew or anybody we've had on the show from Canada. And, you know, in some sense, being part of this diaspora 
it's almost easier to relate to an Italian and Australian than it is to relate to somebody with Anglo-American heritage. His family's been here since the Mayflower, right? So what are we? Where do we fit in? And if we're going to have to be grouped with others, because you can't just let everybody, you can't have 9,000 different things on this list, what's the most logical grouping? I guess that's the real crux of this thing, right? Yeah, and there's no uh, perfect answer, right? That, I, you know, in the whole process, you become painfully aware that, like, nothing, there's there's flaws in any recommendation you make, right? And there's just so much diversity of thought that it's impossible to make everybody happy. So we really, I mean, we listed all of these different options because it was tough to come to a single conclusion. But, and, and, and each one has... Uh, flaws, even just from an administrative perspective. I mean, if you think of the Southern European category, which maybe a lot of people would be okay with, uh, how do you know? How do you draw those lines? You know, what counts as Southern European, and then how do you divide up the rest of Europe, right? And for us, maybe it's easy. We know Italy's in the south. We know that. Uh, but for for a country that's in the middle, how do they know where they fit? Look at the Ellis Island records when they would list the racial categories of Italians. They put some as Southern Italian and Northern Italian. Right. They defined it as two separate races. Right. Is Italian even uh, specific enough? Right. Yeah. That's the problem with this. But again, you know, we need to, well, need is a strong word, right? I think it behooves us as a community to come to some new and more sophisticated approach than just like we're white people who have to decide to write in on the census. And, you know, I was very buoyed by the reaction you guys got in the room of 200 plus Italian Americans between this year's fellows, alumni, mentors, whatever. And the stories that people shared about how they felt, right? Because so many people told us about their great aunts who uh, weren't allowed to be married to a white person because they were considered uh, non-white in, you know, the South or because we, we did have amazing uh, geographic representation, Italian Americans from almost every state were there this year. Um, or, you know, people's own experience of kind of how they feel and how they identify, especially because the age group was 21 to 35. And I think for me personally, you know, there's a lot of people who conflate this with the idea that Italian Americans, if we want to recategorize ourselves, it's because we're looking for some kind of handout. And that's totally nonsense. And I'm going to be very transparent with the audience and saying that I had a big argument with the current head of one of the major Italian American organizations out there who told me this was disgraceful for us to even advocate for because we fought so hard to be white in the first place. And it boggled my mind because I thought to myself, how could you lead an organization supposed to be about Italian American pride when you're telling me you fought to be categorized as something else? I, I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. And it really shocked me. And this idea that the critics of this, kind of uh, effort are putting forth the idea that this is being done to simply get some kind of free handout and it's like embarrassing. We need to just destroy that whole falsehood right now. Can you guys talk about what, what this is not? Yeah, I mean, we want data to know how we're doing. What what the federal government or whatever, education system or whatever they end up doing with it, that's a secondary concern, right? But so if we're underrepresented in a space and a university wants to have a program that considers that, you know, we're not really, at least as a coalition for or against that, we're just saying that treat us like you do any other group. Um, if we're overrepresented in a space, then treat us as an overrepresented group, right? It's not about having a handout. It's just about knowing, you know, accurately how we're doing and then being treated in the same way that others who are doing, you know, the same as us are being treated, right? Uh, I mean, and I know that, you know, there's a lot of people in the Italian American community that are kind of against the victimization, right? And I think that it's just, um, I don't know, it's tough. It's like, I, I understand, but I, but some- But this is not victimization though, right? Well, I think just at a minimum, it's raising awareness. So we talked about a couple of statistics in our presentation and I, you know, after we presented, we had people coming up to us after, and most notably, they wanted to further discuss just a few stats that we brought up, just like one being there haven't been any U.S. presidents of Italian-American descent, um, whereas 23 have been of Irish descent, right? And 
we're roughly 6% of the U.S. population. That's an incorrect statistic. Could I jump in? I'm not trying to be a jerk. No, go ahead. Please, Because And listen, we're not statisticians or historians. Right, but it's, there's so many, like, layers of patina to this because yeah. those presidents were not Irish. They were Scotch-Irish. Now, why is that a big, important thing? The only three presidents that had true Irish blood, meaning that Irish going back 6,000 years to when, 6,000 years ago when they think that the first continental Europeans landed in Ireland were Reagan, Kennedy, and Biden. What about Obama? Didn't Obama have it? He's Scotch-Irish. He's Anglo-Irish. Okay. So what happened was when Cromwell wanted to ethnically cleanse the Irish out of Ireland, he took Scottish people and English people. That's why people misinterpret what's going on in Ireland. For the 99% majority, there's exceptions to everything, but the ethnic Irish were Catholic. And the Scotch and English settlers were Protestant. So people from the outside see it as a Catholic-Protestant um, dilemma, but really it's an Irish dilemma with Scotch and English settlers. So what happened was the Scotch and English settlers came into Ireland, just like Italians who went to Argentina. They stood a multiplicity of generations in Ireland. And from Ireland, these Scotch people of Scotch ethnicity and English ethnicity who had lived in Ireland for many generations packed up and came to the United States, and they refer to themselves as Irish, but they're really not Irish. They're not Gales, right? So uh, Obama, Elvis Presley, so many people who said that, oh, well, we're Irish. And, and But then I don't know who, who's going to make that call either. How many generations do you have to be in Ireland to be Irish? But they didn't identify as Irish. No, I have no interest in this conversation. Can I tell you something? I do because I love these two girls because they're brilliant. They're brilliant academics. But why I get disgusted? When I was in high school, I met an Italian. I'm going to call him an Italian-American kid. He was a Korean kid, born in Korea, adopted by an Italian-American couple who couldn't have children. He was as Italian-American as anybody else, right? He was raised by very New Jersey Italian people. He was a million times more Italian than 90% of kids who grew up in Italian-American households. I don't get the whole racial thing. Who am I to say he's not Italian? Does that make sense? Yeah. I know that's that's throwing that's that's no, but I think that's what I think that's this, I think that's what this is about. Yeah, well, that's my whole thing with this. Who cares? The kid, the kid looked. Listen, he was the most Korean looking child you ever saw in your life. He was one of us. Yeah, so but I'm that's what culture, this is about. This is about a, affording the opportunity for people to identify how they feel. Yeah. And, Why didn't the Beatles write a song about this? Like, give peace a chance. <laughs> no, I get so hung up on this stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's no, it. but I'm I, done. I think this is what this is about. Is the idea that these race-based categories don't really work in a pluralistic and, you know, frankly, in many ways more self-aware society that we have, right? And, and but you know, people are finding their ancestry through DNA and they're doing all these things. And obviously so many people are a multitude of different backgrounds. And so I think the point is a good one that we need a sophisticated approach to this or the other side of the spectrum is we got to do what the French do and just say, we don't care what you are. Right. Yeah, what see else? The French too. See the French say that, right? Yeah. So in the, 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 the lay French Republic, they say everybody's equal, but what they say on paper and how they treat you is different. Sure. Of course. I just, I just want to say, you know, like there's the part of me that's with you um, because I, I understand like, it, you know, at a certain point it does feel ridiculous because there, there is so much diversity, even just within the Italian American community. How can you create these boxes for people to check that none of them are really going to accurately capture our identities, right? And, you know, another point we made is that, you know, not just the Italian American community, but just the, the, the U.S. generally is becoming increasingly of mixed racial and ethnic background, right? Uh, kids under 18, are, over half of them are mixed. Right. And so soon the majority of the U.S. will be mixed. And will these categories just be totally irrelevant to how they identify at a certain point? So, I mean, all of these things are are complex. And so I, I just want to say, like, you know, I, there there is a part of me that agrees with you in a way. But we also don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right. Yes, Which exactly. Because it's a Gordian knot. Right. You're untying a Gordian knot here. It's like. It's so complicated, and people are sensitive about this stuff to begin with, and it comes with all of these different complications. Can I tell why why I get all worked up about, not maybe worked and not worked up about this? It goes back to the guy who screamed at me 
the guy I used to talk to Neapolitan all the time when I used to pick my brother up. And when he found out my last name, he said to me, you try to make a fool out of me all these years. Mm. <laughs> he so goes, crazy. you spoke to me in Nava right. Because like, like the minute he found out I was half Irish, he like wanted nothing to do with me. Yeah, it's insane. And I was like, I, 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 your own grandchildren can't speak this language. And here I am speaking to you. I had a nun in, in school one time and the kids who went to high school with me don't know exactly who it was. You know, I got star points because I was I was Irish. My father had a, a sister who was a nun in Pakistan. My father was Irish off the boat. So with Irish nuns, I was at the absolute top of the, the pecking order, right? And I had one nun, she was a special person, came up to me and said, I heard that your your mother's an Italian. But what the heck does that have to do with anything? You know, it's so funny to think about how everybody now is lumped into this white category, like we're talking about. But a generation ago, even when I was a kid, I you know we lived in an Irish town, and I was reminded consistently that I was not Irish, and I think that that's over. I think this like everybody's become this white ethnic now, whatever they call that, right? And that's another sort of throwaway term that they use. Oh, the white ethnics and the white ethnic vote. And you know, I remember when Dolores got fired from the position of Italian American Affairs at New York State, and really all of the nastiness around that, you can go back and listen to the episode we did together, but we sort of sat down and said like, what, you know, we're supposed to be the largest group in the state. Why can they do away with this? Because they've categorized us as white. Well, what does white even mean? And we kind of came to this conclusion. It just means like this, like an economic level that you get to in this country. And then you just all of a sudden become white. And that to me just doesn't work because it doesn't recognize the, unique experience that we've had and then it says others are not having their unique experience recognized and i think in a pluralistic society it's important to be able to understand what pieces of the mosaic we are actually made up of but i don't get is that our ancestors you know in the ellis islands immigration era came to america and assimilated yeah assimilated out of fear no i i disagree with that too but i'm gonna tell you something you really? I don't think it was that. No, I think a lot of it was they were happy. Italy had a lot of issues. My grandmother says all the time, used to say all the time, my grandmother rest in peace. My grandmother said all the time is that we had a fruit and vegetable store next to a courthouse. And what impressed my great grandmother the most about the United States, because we would get a lot of courthouse traffic. She said, this exact quote, in America, even if a Bhutana is wronged by like a gentleman, like a type of person, and she goes in front of the judge. If she's right, the judge will give her right. That would never, ever happen in Italy. So there was a lot of positive stuff in Italy. But there was lots, a lot of negative stuff. And I think when a lot of a lot of things, when people came here, they were happy to embrace. Because, I mean, look at Italy's class structure. You know, I know an Italian-American, um, he passed away since then, he, World War II generation. His brother was in Italy during World War II and went to their hometown. And he came from a very, very... He came actually from a noble family in Italy, which is another story for another day. And his noble uncle and this American, Italian American GI are walking through the town. And he said hello to somebody walking past him. His uncle said, no, 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 you don't say hello to him. He's below you. He says hello to you first. Because the Italian thing was the person of lower status says the greeting to the person of higher status. And the American GI turned to his uncle and said, well, I'm an American, and in America, we say hi to everybody. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, you know, I think we we, we sometimes romanticize. No, but that's now, a different generation. I'm talking about, you know, you don't think that there was like an anti-Italian, Ameri- uh, an anti-Italian sentiment in America that kind of forced people? To- no, nah, I mean, there was to an extent, yes. Especially people went to the South. And different parts of the country. Sure, there was. No, I disagree and, you with know, you, Pat. I think that I think that there was a lot of pressure to assimilate. Think about all these like Protestant groups that came in, and you know, there was a lesson. Okay, uh, let me you know, throw open the windows. Uh, you know, right. Italians fear the breeze. You got to throw open the window. You got to eat oatmeal. Make your kids eat oatmeal. Make. I mean, you know, that we yeah, hold it. on. All right, let me clarify this. Yes, was there a lot of pressure? Yes, America was a pro- because you have this kind of like activist generation that comes about between eighteen eighty. In American waspy culture and World War One, where you know you have Kellogg's and graham crackers and eat healthy. Yes, yeah. is there cultural pressure for Americans to simulate? Sure, I think the number one um, example of that is the Life Magazine edition 
of Joe DiMaggio saying that um, right. uh, Life Magazine saying, well, he doesn't smell of garlic and olive oil. And um, he actually likes uh, some Chinese dish. It was like chop suey. Chop suey. Yeah. Sure. They were asinine people. But I'm also trying to say in balance, the conversation is there was a lot of stuff in America that freed people. So I'm trying to say is it's a mixed conversation. So, yes, I, we, we've, we've, con- we've now constructed a victimization a, a system. Yes, some things we were victimized on and some things we weren't. But I, 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 I mean, we were going to go with this. Like my whole thing is like it's fun to an extent. But now we have a whole system based on this kind of a, a chessboard of you're this and you're that. And so what would you recommend? The the day, then? What would be the ideal way for us to garner statistics as a country then in your mind? Because it's going to become irrelevant with intermarriage and cultural change. Yeah, but so that's not the question thing, I asked you. My question is, what what would be the what what would you propose is the ideal way for the country? Self identification, self identification. Just leave it blank. You write down what you are, and then sure, let me because just... again, you have a Hispanic. I mean, if you're an Argentinian, yeah, yeah, I get it. Who had was all 100 percent Italian. Yeah, you're right. I don't, yeah. I don't know. I, no, I think self identification. It's like if if the if the if the crew from the Italian Australian podcast moved here became American citizens. What are they? Are they Australian? Are they Italian? I, I, it's true. Now, c- culturally, we got along with them. Yeah. Right? Our friends yeah. in the Ita- uh, Italian-Australian podcast, Sushi Mango, we hit it off with them. Italian-Canadians, we hit it off with them because we have the same culture. Right? But now, if you find a, a, a kid who's genetically 100% Italian who was put up for adoption, you know, if you were put up for adoption and you were adopted by a very strong culture, like a Mormon culture or, or, or Hispanic people or Asian people of some type, you know, are you Italian because your DNA is Italian? I mean, sure. We'll, I mean, we're, we're open people. We'll take anybody. But what I'm yeah, saying that's... is that my thing is like, okay, well, I'll, you want to know something? I know an adopted family. The kid was the kid. The, ch- the children were Italian Americans. They actually won. The adopted mother had the same kids with the same father and put all these kids up for adoption. It's a long story. But they're genetically Italian-American. They were raised by a Hispanic family. They're chicken and rice people. That's their comfort food. Mm-hmm. Why is it their comfort? That's what they grew up with. So sure. they could be as Neapolitan in the world, but they only found out when they found out who the, the birth mother was. So, yeah, their, their comfort food is Hispanic food. So what yeah, are they? Are they Italian because they were born Italian because they got the DNA in them? But until they found out, until all this 23andMe and DNA stuff came out, they had no idea what they were. But but I love the work that Christina and Kiara does. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I, look, this I'm is- I'm well the... confused over this. Why are I even involved yeah, in this and conversation? I just think it's up to the person to just, it's up to the person, right, on how they want to identify, whether it's through their own experiences or, you know, through how they look, what their ethnicity is, right? It's it's just giving them the choice to identify however they feel they identify. We're not here to put someone in a box. Right. So if any if someone wants to check, you know, a white box or a European box, like that's totally their prerogative, right? We're just here to say how that data is collected and then interpreted should be meaningful and we should have some organization to it. But people are free to check whatever box they want. But this is my question. A first cousin on my father's side whose mother was born and raised in Ireland, my father's sister, married a Polish-American guy. So those kids, when she came here, so those kids are Irish. He is Irish and Polish. He married a girl he went to high school with who's half Chinese and half Pakistani. His children are Chinese, Pakistani, Irish, and Polish. What do you put down? And I'm not saying that I, that, that now. Let's say they marry another kid of a mixed Ethnicity. Where do you even start? And, and, uh, yeah, but the, but the other thing is, though, let me just say one more. Well, thing. I want to hear the responses. Yeah, but let me just say one more thing with this because it's going to clarify it. Those grandchildren, seventy-five, three of their four grandparents were born in a, in another country. So their their Irish grandmother was born in Ireland. Their Chinese grandmother was born in China, and their Pakistani grandfather was born in Pakistan. So this is strong. They're coming right from the motherland, but. In the modern world, in America, they are what they are. So un- under the current rules and the proposed rules, I mean, they can check whatever they want. No one's telling them what to check, right? So they can check as many boxes as they want. And when it comes to data on mixed people, they don't have a good solution. I mean, currently, they they asked for feedback on a single multiracial category, um, but it wasn't really in their initial proposals. They just kind of said, what do you guys think about this? You know, we said that that's not good enough, obviously. I mean, soon that's going to be the whole country. And we'll just... What right. That was our third recommendation, was just to say you should have more effort 
on collecting these multi. And we don't have a solution. I mean, it is right. tough. You're right, Pat, right? Like it is really tough. Um, and then also just in response to your just, well, this should just be a blank and you should be able to fill out whatever you want. I mean, symbolically, I agree with you. Like you should just be able to say whatever you want, but administratively, that would be a nightmare, right? right? What are they going to do with all those responses? Even just in the Italian community, you're going to get 50 different answers. And then we actually won't have the data we need on how we're doing because they don't even know who's who, right? Right. And agencies are already giving a pushback on saying, you know, collecting data at a detailed category level is... Already too burdensome. This is really, really fascinating to me because it, it's, you know, there's the side of the argument that says, what's it matter? And in, in a generation and a half, the country's all going to be of mixed descent anyway. But at the same time, you know, this is what I've made my whole life about is our community, right? And our experience. And yeah, understanding where we are, those statistics, what it means. And again, it comes back to, and, and I mean, you guys mentioned the reaction you got in the room, right? These are young people. I was so impressed, by the way. I just want to say, like, before yeah. even doing the presentation, um, like, two of my concerns was, one, I didn't want to offend anyone, right, because it sure. is a topic. And two, just considering, like, the age range and different people's level of interest, I was like, I don't want to lose people. I don't want to bore anyone. Like, I, you know, want to keep engagement. Um, and right from the beginning, like, those concerns went away. Like, people were so passionate and just willing to share their own personal experiences. I was so impressed. Me too. Something that's driven me with IAFL and I have ranted and raved about is people under 35 have to steer the ship because they're going to have to define all this stuff. Yeah. So my formative years, you were an ethnicity. You were a mix of ethnicities. And I grew up still in the tail end years of the Archie Bunker world where on primetime television, you know, um, Archie Bunker called his his uh, son-in-law, you know, Mike, uh, you know, meathead, Polak, right? You couldn't do that today. But ethnic jokes like, you know, this guy and that one walked into a bar were still very, very common. They're so it's so gone now that a, a college age kid wouldn't even get that. Yeah. What I'm saying is they were the years that I grew up in. Now, my grandparents generation grew up in a time and your grandparents, John. When uh, the Joe DiMaggio years, when Life Magazine th said things like, oh, you know, we were so surprised he didn't smell of garlic and olive oil, right? right? So it was an outside cultural thing to find them who they were. And it was easy back then because if your four grandparents, if your two parents were immigrants from Italy, you're Italian, right? And then something morphs into this Italian-American thing probably in the 30s from the grandchildren of the people who came here in 1880 about 1880s, late 1870s, right? So if you take the people who came in 1880, 1870, by 1930, that's grandchildren of theirs. And they're the first real Italian-Americans in the sense of you have mixed marriages and like Lou Costello, people don't realize Lou Costello's father was from Caserta, right, of Abbott and Costello, and his mother was Irish-American. Right. So that, that was the beginnings of, a, of intermarriage or whatever, interracial or whatever you want to determine it. But it's going to be Heinz 57 for the new, new kids coming in and to me, it's important that Kiara and Christine are making these conversations because they're defining, defining, and I don't want to say litmus test, but, but the definitions for their generation. Yeah. Because it's it's something that they're going to handle. And then there's kids right now in utero, right? There's listeners right now who have Italian American babies in their bellies, right? Or a father or Italian American children. And when and those kids, if they're in IAF, IAFL, 21 years from now, which is like a generation. They're going to have to define it their own way. Yeah. Yeah. But I'll so, be 70 then. You know how depressing that is? <laughs> if you're a baby, if you got a kid in utero right now, when they go to IAFL, if yeah. I'm still here, that'll be my 70th birthday. You'll oh, still be there. You think I want to be a hot, young, 70-year-old guy? Am I going to be like, oh, how is he 70? He does a little bit there with 50. You could be like Hugh Hefner. The Italian Irish version and walk around in like your socks. I am many things. I am not you, Hefner. But like your own kind. But I think for his 50th birthday, we should do a Friars Club. Let's not talk about that number. Let's <laughs> let's not talk about Ro that. Ro and I are going to be the planning committee yeah. for your birthday anyway. So it doesn't matter what you want. So it's going to happen somehow. For next and birthday, we'll just use next. It's going to be a big one. And it's going to be at IFL, God willing, IFL 3. Wherever God finds any of us in 21 years, because nobody knows. And God willing, we still have IFL going on. I think the beauty of what we've done is that 
we've given a blank slate to every generation to self-define who they are. I hope so. Because we didn't come in. We didn't come in and say Kiara and Christina, okay, well, this is what makes because the old let's go the, the Italian American boomers, let's not call them out on who they are, would have been the generation that came in. Well, this is what makes you Italian American. We've never played that card. Yeah. We didn't come in and say, well, this is what this is the this is the passage fee, this is the entry fee. Um, this is the qualification. And I think that in a world of disruptive change, I mean, if you go back to the Middle Ages, right? Let's take my, my father lived when the when my father was born in Ireland in 1943. He had no running water, no electricity, and he lived in a house that was hundreds of years old with that uh, with the thatch roof type houses. That his his my grandmother having him in 1943, her life was minimally different than someone in 1643 or 1743. We didn't even have a radio or anything like that. And the reason I'm saying is that hundreds of years in in Europe. It was very, very little change from one generation to another. Things were yep. basically the same for hundreds of years. But now we're in a world where change is, is, is so quick. You know, within six months in a year, everything's changed so quickly. How in the world could anybody define something for anything more than the present moment? Yeah. Things besides absolute truth, right? Like right and wrong and stuff like this. Certain things are absolutely true and they're eternally will be true. And I can say that with confidence right now. But what determines Italian-American? I don't know. If I'm around at 70 and the kids are in utero now, I don't know how they're going to define that, but that's going to be their decision. And that's why we got to keep this space open because Kiara and Christina, in my opinion, are defining what it means for them. And the next generation has to define for themselves. Do you think I've articulated that correctly? Don't tell me what you think I want to hear because I'm your friend. Do you think I've articulated that correctly? Because that's what I take away from what you've done. You've articulated that for this moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and we did our best to not just do it for our generation, but just to come up with solutions that work for all the generations, right? Because we all have to use these categories, not just us, right? But but definitely, I mean, I think this generation is maybe willing to push back on what the federal government tells us we are and to, you know, uh, self-define ourselves right, and just with an understanding that it's evolving like what we're doing right now isn't set in stone for the future yeah definitely you know why else i love this people say how do we fight stereotypes these two girls fight stereotypes so when social uh social media or popular culture spins italian americans as buffoons and jersey shore and as idiots and um you're the answer to that we don't need to, in my opinion, we don't need to go out and fight them in, in, in the lowness of where they are with stuff. You two girls are the absolute epitome of what we are and what we're not. I think that's very true. I agree with you completely. I hope, I hope we have you guys at a lot more IFLs for, on topics like this and others and to give mentorship to the next uh, classes that keep coming through because, yeah, I was very proud that uh, – this was part of our conversation this year and, and excited to get us on this call today so we can get it out in front of the audience. So thank you guys for making time because I know you're both busy. And uh, is there anywhere we could share the information that you guys have put together? Is there any kind of landing place for people who are interested in this stuff? Yeah, well, there is the, the comment, the public comment that you wrote, if people are interested in reading that. Um, yeah. And we've already circulated it. We can post it somewhere if people are interested in reading it. Um, but then also, I mean, so we gave these recommendations, right? And now the government has until the summer to determine like what they want to do with it, if anything at all. So we can continue to monitor it and keep people updated on if they're going to accept our recommendations, if they're going to partially accept them, right? Because it's not like they have to take them all as a bundle. They can cherry pick what they you know, want to take from each recommendation, or they can flat out deny it altogether. And then as a community, we can decide like, what we do from there like and then part of our presentation um was giving out different ideas and options on next steps we can take if you know our recommendations are flat out rejected yeah i think it's going to be very interesting then to, to see this summer kind of what happens and where we go from here and the thing that has buoyed me as someone who believes i think kiara said don't what did you say don't don't lose sight of the perfect for the good how did you say it so brilliantly perfect to be the enemy of the good don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Like, I think we have to come up with something. And I was very buoyed by the idea that uh, it felt to me the majority of people in that room a couple of weeks ago were very much behind this idea that we are something unique and we got to find the right way to memorialize that and to 
understand it as a statistical tool. And so I, I think this is a, a an issue that people care about, and I'm glad we have two very, very capable leaders from our community uh, leading the charge. So thank you guys for doing that, and thank you guys for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having us. And just, uh, I just The best to of the best. Just to circle back to Rose's point earlier, just about Italians being forced to assimilate, like something I always keep in the back of my mind. Um, so my grandfather is 96, still working every day. Um, but he still keeps um, a paper clipping. I forget which newspaper it was from. I think a local one, maybe in Connecticut, or actually maybe even the New York Times. I should find it. But he still keeps a newspaper clipping on his desk of a job posting that says Italians need not apply. Are you kidding? Oh, I swear. Yeah. God, I get a photo of that. That's fantastic. I got to see that. That's that's the kind of stuff that motivates people. I right. Just- for too many people, you know, even the, the the generation that came that were, you know, young children in the in the sixties, and they always tell me, No, we don't speak Italian because my parents didn't want us to speak Italian. They only wanted us to speak English because we were America in America and we had to be American. Otherwise kids were gonna make fun of us. And, you know, I grew up with a very internalized you know, I was very lucky to to be raised in like a microcosm of Maldi body where we were just going to be, you know, Southern Italian freaks or anyone liked it or not. But I remember hearing so many stories of people that were afraid to, to be Italian American. And now that it's kind of OK, it's like, why wouldn't we claim that for ourselves? Yeah, right. No, and- can, I'm, can I throw in a fact, John, I don't know where you put this. I lived with my grandmother my entire life. And I was in grammar school and I got slighted by an Irish kid in grammar school. I'm not going to say who it was or what it was, but my grandmother was convinced. She goes, they know your mother's an Italian. They did that to you because your mother was an Italian. And I said to my grandmother, that is the most ridiculous thing. They did not do that because my mother was an Italian. And my grandmother was insistent on it. I don't know. And she didn't even know this kid. I don't know why she smelled it. And she's telling me in grammar school, they did it to you because they know your mother's an Italian. And then it came out years ago, years later, when we were in high school, about their parents making anti-Italian derogatory remarks. Yeah. And I thought to myself, how did, what was it kind of, how did my grandmother smell with a kid she never met? And maybe she was, I, I still think she was out of her mind. I don't think they, <laughs> they, they, they did what they did to me because I was Italian. My mother was Italian. But she was so convinced of that. And I'm like, she's just crazy. And years later, when they were telling me, the guinea comments that their parents would make, I thought to myself, gee, maybe she was right. Maybe her instincts were right. And I was too trusting. Yeah. And I'll never know. Right. That That's a that's a mystery left to the ages. When I think of this kind of question and how we identify and and ultimately why we self-identify is what drives me, because if 18.25 million people took the time to write Italian or Italian American on the other line or the blank line, whatever it is. It tells me that that's a healthy, a healthy and significant number of people who feel the same way I do about what they are. So the how we do it can be better, as this conversation proves. But what's more important is why we do it. And from the great success we had last year at IFL, I took a lot of things, two of which were bookends in my mind in summing up what I took away last year. One was Kiara's commentary on how we could be doing these things better, which I thought was such a wonderful and encouraging, sophisticated approach. And the other was the conversation, which somehow turned, I don't even remember how, to stereotypes. And the participants of this younger generation basically said, like, we're not so much concerned with movies like The Godfather or shows like The Sopranos. We're concerned with instances in our real life of pretty transparent anti-Italian racism that never get coverage like one of the participants last year whose father was running for a local office in new jersey a hard-working dedicated devoted italian-american public servant his whole life and he was uh polling ahead of his non-italian opponent and at the last days the opponent ran a smear commercial about this guy being you know intimating that he might be some kind of mafia-like figure and the guy lost by a couple hundred votes and it broke his heart this kid's father and I'm embarrassed that I can't remember who it was. Uh, I remember that. You remember that, right? I and do. I thought to yeah. myself, yeah. here we are. We've spent all this time as a community and resources fighting the Sopranos and the and the Godfather. And I remember, you know, 
uh, Scorsese was accepted an award at NIAF, and the day before they gave it, this is long before my time, the day before they gave it to him, there was a revolt on the board, and they wanted to take it away from him. And it got back to him that they didn't, they, they didn't want to give him this award. And we spent all this time fighting amongst ourselves and, and fighting these media portrayals. And here was this wonderful sophistication, again, from this younger generation saying, like, okay, we can deal with that. But what we can't deal with is all this money and energy and time fighting in media portrayals and these real instances of anti-Italianism just get overlooked. And so for me, it is real, and it's real for people nowadays, and it's still felt in a lot of instances. And maybe, Pat, your grandmother was right. Maybe it's, it's been there the whole time. Maybe it's part of the assimilation process. Whatever it is, we are different. We feel different. We self-identify and we need the vehicles and the opportunities to do that. I think that's what this is all about. So I think you guys are doing amazing work. I look forward to the next phase. If you're out there in the audience and you want to get involved in this, there's plenty of ways we can put you in touch with uh, Chiara and Christina and the leaders behind this important initiative. But ultimately, whatever happens, go out there and self-identify. If there's no category and uh, it's just a blank line, take the time, no matter what you are, Put Italian and Italian-American. It helps us know who's out there and know what our community really is, and that's super important. So from all of us, the Italian-American podcast, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. See that you're born an Italiano 